Estradile Illusions. We are kicking off a, I want to say a month, but it's also probably going to be like a six-week stretch of really film-heavy topics, and uh, with a couple of film festivals on the horizon, and uh, all sorts of uh, stuff coming uh, coming our way with new releases, uh, it's a really exciting uh period for film and i've been watching a lot of great films and i'm super excited to have the uh co-writers and co-directors that's three separate people here to talk to us about the fabulous new transgender documentary no ordinary men about really an icon of uh, transgender lore and for our listeners cisgender trans or otherwise if you don't know billy tipton i mean this this man's life is just so fascinating and the documentary does such a fabulous job unpacking both his life uh his legacy and why his name brings a smile to so many trans people's faces uh without further ado i want to introduce uh our guests uh ashling do you want to go first yeah, thank you so much for that introduction. That was so lovely. Uh, I'm Ashling Chinyi. I'm one of the co-writers of No Ordinary Man and one of the co-directors of No Ordinary Man as well. Uh, Amos, do you want to go? Oh, sure. Hi, uh, this is Amos Mack. I am a co-writer of No Ordinary Man. Happy to be here. And my name is Chase Joint, and I am a co-director of the project as well. So the first question is is uh, probably pretty obvious in general. Um, for an outside uh, person who doesn't know uh, Billy, who is Billy Tipton in a nutshell? <laughs> Billy Tipton was a transmasculine jazz musician who gigged in bands and trios throughout the southern U.S. in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. He married a number of times. He adopted a number of children. And in 1989, after his death, was outed as having been assigned female at birth. And from there, the details of Tipton's life were really controlled by the talk show and tabloid media. And our project turns the story over to an incredible cohort of trans artists and thinkers and to Tipton's son, Billy Jr. So one of the things that really drew me to uh, this documentary is, I mean, I, I, I'm sure everybody here has a lot of experience with uh, being told that that being transgender is is kind of like a new concept that it didn't exist until uh, the Vanity Fair cover with Caitlyn Jenner. Um, I, I mean, there are people out there who actually believe that. And uh, I mean, it, it's part of why I'm so fascinated with trans history because we get to explore, you know, how these, uh, who these people were and how they lived before, uh, you know, at a time when it was really uh, not at all feasible to be out and living uh, as yourself. And uh, longtime listeners will know we had, uh, we featured Dr. Jen Mannion, the author of the book Female Husbands, uh, a couple months back, which uh, presented so many different fascinating uh, trans narratives from, I mean, going back to like even the 1800s. And, and Billy lived at a time in a place where that was, uh, you know, it was not at all safe for him to, to come out. And you know, he he lives such a uh, interesting life as a as a jazz musician at a time when you know you, you you think like, gee, how could somebody have have success in that field as 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 a trans masculine person back then? Absolutely, yeah. Trans people have existed forever, and I think one of the things that our project is trying to think out loud about is the ways in which language changes and our understanding of what transness and, and gender nonconformity can mean historically and in the contemporary moment. 
So in, in, in terms of the genesis of this project, I mean, one of the things that I, I really caught my interest early on was was the fact that, I mean, there's there's tremendous difficulty when it comes to uh, presenting a life like Billy's on screen in the absence of, I mean, is there is there even, a, I mean, is there any video of, of him that does exist, period? I mean, it was, it's really, it was a challenge for you all to, to um, mm-hmm. come to this, you know, to, to present it in in the in such a visual medium yeah i mean as far as we know there was not any sorry ashley (laughs) do you want to go 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 no you you take it away as far as i as far as we know there is no moving image footage of billy tipton uh we've done you know as many deep dives as we possibly could to locate anything (laughs) from his time of you know recording at Capitol records to um, finding um, footage of his early bandstand gigs, but really uh, we had lots of photographs and that's why the, the casting comes in, you know, bringing in other trans actors to portray a person who, you know, they've never seen really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we really did a lot of digging. We, we really wanted to find <laughs> those little, you know, you, you want to find that treasure trove of, you know, 16 millimeter film that's filled with Billy having a, you know, on stage and in these jazz clubs and everything like that. But because he was really a working class musician, it wasn't a, and, you know, from the thirties to the sixties, it wasn't a place where, you know, these weren't, these weren't spaces where cameras were often found. So, you know, we quickly discovered that that wasn't going to be a possibility. And so we, we started thinking out of the box, but what, what, how else can we look at his life and look at moments that exist in his life through a different, a different, a different portrayal? And for listeners, uh, the, the, the way that the film uh, goes about portraying Billy is uh, they bring in a bunch of uh, transmasculine performers, actors to come in and um, audition and and sort of speak as as Billy. Do you want to talk a little bit about that that process? And because I mean, it, it's something that I was very intrigued uh, as the film started because I kept thinking, you know, how's this going to work? And it, the the emotional depth that you uh, were able to to portray from those sequences it was it was very moving, and it it kind of really made the case for you know Billy as this inspirational figure for our community as well, because you just, you, you see him alive in, in people today. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that was most important to us was to be very clear with our participants about our intentions. And so that started in a casting call of saying, we're looking for transmasculine performers who want to participate in a documentary, you know, underlined and bolded about Billy Tipton and transmasculine history. And so we were really grateful that so many incredibly talented humans walked through that door, really willing to speak about their own relationship to transness and to think out loud with each other about what it means to try and create a project like this. Uh, does anybody else want to? Yeah. And, yeah. and I think just in, in, in the process when we were writing, um, it was, you know, in our research about like different sort of milestones and moments in Billy's life, like what would we want, what, how would we want to feel um, or what would we want to experience like when he was going for his first job, when he was meeting 
an icon of his like Duke Ellington when, you know, when he saw someone who had a similar experience to him at a radio station, Buck Thomason, who gave him his first gig, um, you know, performing on the radio. And so we wrote those out, Amos and I wrote those, those scenes out and just, you know, it's kind of imaginings, but never wanting to do a recreation because it was, you know, it's kind of a tried and like, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a way of telling a story that we've seen before and to kind of not lock us into just finding an, one actor who looked and represented Billy physically. We wanted to open it up and be like, well, what are the, what are the stakes about actually putting yourselves in his experience and his shoes coming from people that actually are coming from a trans experience. So that, you know, became a very exciting poss- you know, possibility. And then, yes, we had so many amazing actors step forward to the project. And then we got the magic that we, that we, that we were able to capture on screen with those interactions. And the, the documentary does a, a great job kind of, I, I noted in my review and I have it in my notes here, like it, it seemed that the documentary had two, Sort of, because I mean, when we think about Billy, there's he's he's such an interesting figure in the sense that there's really two Billys, at least two, I guess. Um, there's kind of Billy, the historical figure, the father, the husband, the musician. There's there's details that that you can go and and find out, and then there's the Billy sort of uh, that that is is such an icon of of the trans community that even um, you know Billy's son is. Uh, a prominent part of the the documentary, and it it, it seemed like he was pretty uh, unaware of of what his what his father has meant to so many different people. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, and I think if we wanted to add a third layer, we can think about the Billy that is produced by the mainstream media and the kind yes, of yes. attention to his life story and the details of his death and how that in some ways, you know, is what stitches the other understandings of his life together. Yeah, I always think of it as, you know, there's the Billy Billy Tipton who lived his life, and then there was the Billy Tipton after his death, really, where when his story, the story mm-hmm. that he, the narrative that he created, that he lived and experienced, it really went away after death, and it became somewhat, you know, the media's experience. But, you know, one of the things that we always talk about as a team is that that talk show circuit footage, while violent and in some ways unthinkable, is also part of the reason why we recognize Billy as part of a trans history. And so really thinking about it in, in, a, in a complex way that was both kind of a devastating outing and also an opportunity that we all now feel in some ways very grateful for. Right, I mean, it, it, his his death, the uh, the outing, and the 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 whole sequence of being, you know, ha- having his his body, you know, discovered and uh, or by the paramedics telling uh, Billy Junior that, you, you know, the it, it's it's really the probably you could pretty much go to any trans person and think about like, what's the worst case scenario for your death possible. It'd be like, you know, some cis people hovering over you, marveling at your body. It's just like the worst, worst possible thing imaginable. And of course, I mean, I have a lot of questions about the media because that's, uh, it's such a, uh, 
you all did such an eloquent job of dissecting media problems that were uh, certainly in existence before his death in, in 1989. But, I mean, really, if you look at the, the landscape today, I mean, it, it's changed, but, but a lot of it has really remained the same in terms of the, the, the fascination of, of on transgender bodies and also the idea that, you know, we're, we're objects to be uh, gazed at rather than, you know, being part of the conversation ourselves. You know, it's, it's a very frustrating dynamic that still does continue to this day. Yeah, I think that's true in some ways, but we can also look, you know, I'm, I'm remembering right now the moment on uh, Katie Couric where Laverne Cox and Carmen Carrera are in conversation and literally stop the kind of curious questioning in its tracks. And, you know, we are able to revisit that moment via social media as one of many turning points where trans people are taking control of the Toxo stage and repositioning the narrative. Yes, I, I, I definitely uh, agree with that. I also liked, I mean, I was even, I was thinking about your uh, documentary yesterday. I was at the dentist and I had to go to a new dentist because of my insurance. And I was like, you know, just, just the, the familiar feeling of like, uh, is this going to be cringy? You just walk in and it's special. I mean, it, it's it's very politically relevant now when we have a Supreme Court justice who in in America, mm-hmm. and we have some Canadians uh, aboard, which is great. We always love having uh, <laughs> Canadian filmmakers. We've had a bunch this year, which is great. But um, Amy Coney Barrett mm-hmm. and yeah. the idea, like, it, it could be possible in the future to basically rewind the clock and basically go back to Billy's time again, where mm. you know you can go into a hospital. I mean. I, I can only speak, you know, longtime listeners of the show. Um, I, I've had people repeatedly misgender me in the hospital as they're staring into my vagina. So I know how ridiculous it still is. Um, and I, I just I fear about, you know, when we think about progress, wh- which 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 way we're going to go. Yes. Yeah, it's it's, you know, it's like a heavy side kind of thing. And um but to think about the, the, the way that the media, the, the tabloids covered this, because it was so, I mean, it was like they put Billy's, um, Billy's wife's name was uh, Marianne, right? That was uh, Kitty. one of, Kitty. was Marianne one, was a one partner one. at one point, right? Yeah. Just before oh. Kitty. Yeah. But Kitty is okay. the one who's sort of featured most prominently in the, in the film. Okay. So Kitty was the one, and then um, at least two of Billy's sons were were being interviewed uh, by the media, and like, you know, you 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 see the 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 imagery of the old um, the old kind of talk show sets, and the people are just it, it, it felt kind of like an Inquisition interrogation, like how could you not know? And it was like they were on trial for mm-hmm. some 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 you know quote unquote crime that. it's still to this day it's kind of like well who who organized this like why did this happen yeah one of the things i think we as a team 
came to really love through our research about Kitty and Billy Jr. on the talk show circuit is that, you know, in the face of such an inquisition and in the face of such ongoing violent curiosity, they hold strong to their story about Billy. And I love the kind of opacity there. I love that we don't gain access. And there might have been more nuance to some of their experiences or their understandings, but we as a public don't have any right to know. And I think that there's a profound beauty in recognizing that, especially at a time where they were not working from a number of models and where the only representation of trans people on talk shows was incredibly exploitative. And I think their, their presence on those shows was quite exceptional. Yeah. I, I, I think that, um, that the, the, the way that they handled, uh, the way that they handled themselves and also the way that there was, you know, there's a time in the documentary where, I mean, one of the obvious questions about Billy Tipton's life, especially after his death, is, you know, the mind to some extent naturally kind of goes to the, you know, how could his wife not know? Like, how is that? How is that mm-hmm. possible? And yet at the same time, you have to kind of think to yourself, gee, why am I asking this question? And I just loved the way that that your film address that because it is it, it, it is both um, an exploration of that question but also of, of the nature of why we would even think to ask that question itself. Yes, absolutely. And we got to tell you, we've been on the press circuit with this film for long enough to know that we get halfway through interviews and people will say to us, but what do you think? Do you think they knew? And we just have to laugh out loud at them, you know, because it's a kind of an amazing moment where you understand that the media can so often just reproduce itself through, through its mode of questioning. Yeah, people will ask. And I noticed you, know, that you when, didn't answer a specific question in the film. <laughs> you know, <laughs> out of everything, yeah. that's the takeaway. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a, it's been a funny one. Where it's like, oh yeah, we yeah, like you said before, like we have a, we have made a few steps forward, but then there's always like this sort of like two steps back. It can always seem, and there's so much more. There's so much more that progress that we need to still make, and. Yeah, I mean, and and the one of the things that you know, like Thomas Page McVie, like you know, says so eloquently and articulately in the film is that like, well, you know, why are you asking these questions? Why is there such a fascination? Why is there? Why do you need to know these things that are incredibly private and personal relationships between a, a, a husband and a wife, between a family? And it's like, it's these questions need to be taken off the table and can we just get to know who this person was and listen to and, and just hear who he said he was and how he represented himself. And so we hope that that's, you know, that message comes through in the film, but of course there's, there's still a lot, <laughs> a lot of progress that still needs to be made in the mainstream understanding. I think that's a, a, a good way to um, segue into it's sort of related topic and that's I really liked how the film I mean on this show we talk a lot about the just the nature of passing and I always try to like remind the audience that like as a trans woman with not one but but two male names like I'm a really bad like person to talk about like to talk about what what passing means to people because it, it means something totally different for me but like when, when I try to talk to people about it I, I, I try to remind like look when you're presenting, it, it, it's about comfort, and that's kind of really true of of really anybody, uh, trans or cis or or, or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, 
when, when it comes to Billy's life, that would have just been, uh, he, he would approach that kind of concept as totally different. I mean, you see all the pictures of him. He looks really happy. Uh, obviously, like there's a certain base level of comfort there, but there is also a stealth for the sense of, of his, his own safety and his livelihood and all sorts of other things. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the ways that passing and stealth living emerges in our film is through really direct engagement with some of our actors. And, you know, for all the ways that we can talk about Billy's life, I think that watching actors engage with Billy's choices and thinking about even just as a process of performance, putting themselves in his shoes really revealed some of the the ongoing considerations about passing and or not in contemporary contexts. I, I, I still like, cause it's still something that I'm, I'm thinking a lot about and it's certainly, uh, you know, a big, op- like there's so much, uh, the, the mainstream media and, and society at large, uh, there's still a lot of work they need to do with, with regards to, uh, like non-binary representation or just fe- you know, featuring tr- trans people in, in roles that aren't, you know, like the, the, the whole, the whole notion behind the, the logic behind casting like cis men in, in roles as trans women or, or any of that stuff is like, you need the audience to be totally aware of what you're trying to say. <clears throat> and for a lot of us, it's like, no, well, no, nobody, nobody needs to do that. And that's like, that's even more true, true of real life. You know, you don't, you're not like making a little checkbox. And in the film, they talk a lot about how, like, you know, when it comes to passing and people are trying to like, you know, look for a single sign that's there that gives you away. And it's like, well, this isn't a game of where's Waldo. Like, this is ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's a way, too, that our project is really asking different questions about casting. And, you know, we have friends who are making movies about the politics and legacy of trans representation in cinema, thinking about Sam Fader's disclosure as one recent example. And, you know, we are asking questions about casting. You know, what does it mean to think about embodiment rather than thinking about casting as a way to think about performance? And I think that in some ways is, is, is a gift given to us by nonfiction as a format. Oh de- yeah, definitely. And we had uh, we had Sam on in, I want to say June. I was at that that premiere at Sundance, which was uh, very fun. Yeah, I mean it was it was also that that kind of also segues into. Um, I want to go back to to Buck for a second because um, another thing that we talk about a lot on this show is like for for us who live in play, you know big places like Los Angeles or uh, Toronto or Montreal, um, you know, you can find community, not, not necessarily that hard, but, but for somebody like me who can walk down the street and see a trans person that I don't know, mm-hmm. that's a totally different experience for, uh, somebody in Billy's world growing up or even for people, uh, in the South or in rural areas or lots of other points. And f- for, for Billy to have, uh, his, his encounter with Buck, which, um, you know, we don't know all that much about, but you, you were able to bring such emotion out of just, just something that that uh, we can all relate to, just a sense of, here's another person like me. Totally. Amos, this is your platform. Oh <laughs> <laughs> I swear, I'm going to start writing, like, fan fiction about Buck and, and Billy. 
at any day now. Like that's the point that I've turned my obsession of these two um, friends or friends. We'll never know. I I'm just fascinated by the community. You know the the relationship that they had. There's not much out there between Buck and Billy, uh, other than what I could find in Diane Middlebrook's book, Suits Me, um, that was very well researched, but, you know, lots of misgendering going on and lots of, uh, oh, we have, you know, we have a lot, lot of critiques about, about it, but I'll skip over that for now. But really, the Buck-Billy friendship is something I wish there was more about. You know, I don't know if you want me to, like, go into the small amount we know, but... You know, if you, you watch the film, then you know that it was took place at a um, their first meeting was at the radio station that Buck's father owned. Buck was a big DJ and Billy came in for his very first like uh, pre gig radio show where they would perform live on the air in order to promote that night's uh, local event. So, um, you know, learning that Buck was transmasculine and um very loud and uh, someone who was not, um, you know, was, was living authentically uh, as, as far as like we could tell from what we've read. Uh, just wish that there was more information out there. Yeah. Um, anyway, I remember sorry. it was, oh yeah, go ahead. Oh no, 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 go ahead. Well, I just remember um, like back in like February of 2019 when, um, when we were, researching and reading Diane Middlebrook's book. And I remember, you know, <laughs> Amos, I remember you saying like, she's writing this whole thing. And it's just like this, such a, like this anomaly, this person who's doing this thing that no one's ever done before. And then he meets someone who's just like him. And then like a few pages <laughs> later and like, and then who would have thought this could have ever happened. It was just like the right. most hilarious way that it was written <laughs> down. And, and yeah, it was, like the fact that she didn't, you know, this like, you know, accomplished biographer did not see her own hypocrisy and the things that were just sort of so bright, like these lights that were bright and shining right in her face. And she was like, no, I'm just going to ignore. I'm going to pivot somewhere else and keep on my, my narrative. That's hilarious. I almost like, I almost, like, I almost forgot honest. about that because really it was like, <laughs> I remember being blown out of the water by it because it, it takes everything that Diane Middlebrook was writing, exactly what you just said, Ashling, about trans masculinity being so strange and unique. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> but Billy happens to like come across <laughs> someone very similar to him. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. And, who, and who also gave, gave, yeah, like you said, like gave him such a significant break in his career that like put him, you know, you know, put him as a front man and a personality. And, and when he was doing these live shows, like he would be, he would be riffing and telling jokes and doing all this stuff. And he wasn't really the Billy Tipton, you know, he's the Billy Tipton trio. He wasn't really doing that until Buck was like, made him a regular on this radio, on this radio show. So it's, you know, it's just like, yeah, it's, it's, it's like give opportunity to people that deserve it when you see it. And it's, it's, it's still true. It's a conversation that again, people are talking about like inclusion and diversity today. That's like, well, you know, it's been happening for generations when you just, when you just allow people, you know, in those sort of positions of power to, to give access, you know? So there you go, Buck, we salute you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I do. I think that a, a film about, 
Billy and uh, Buck would be would be would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I, and it's also I mean, it, it also just kind of hits on a theme that's particularly relevant in, in the covid era, which is, uh, you know, community and LGBTQ people have been uh, often disproportionately affected um, emotionally by by covid because you're often uh, cut off from your support systems, your local uh community centers and any place to meet really. And, uh, there's a lot of LGBTQ people who are, uh, you know, currently stuck, stuck at home in, in, uh, scenarios where they may not be, uh, even may not be safe for them to come out. And you just think about it. It, it just, it hit me so hard because I mean, I, I can viscerally kind of think of a few encounters I've had with other trans people, especially early in my transition. And that meant so much. And you always like, you have to like, it's important. I mean, sometimes a lot of people want to say like, what is the LGBTQ community? It's a monolith. It's too big to like mean, you know, what exactly does it mean as a, like opposed to an abstract concept? And it's like, well, that billion buck moment, that that's the LGBTQ community right there. That's the community in action. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think one of the things that's so um, meaningful to us when we think about an ordinary man is those Billy Buck moments happened within the context of the film itself. You know, I love that moment between Amos and Alex and that moment of recognition that, you know, Amos's work as a cultural producer had such a formative impact on Alex's early sense of self and, and coming to recognize himself as a trans person. And, uh, you know, it was one example of many where the participants in artists in our film were, were recognizing each other. You know, I think about the fact that Jameson Green's book, Becoming a Visible Man, you know, was on my mom's nightstand more, you know, well, well over a decade ago as she was sort of reckoning with what it might mean to, to have a trans kid and all of those moments of inter-community connectivity. And Stephen Pennington. Stephen Pennington. <laughs> I'll just give my whole trans coming of age. I'll tell you the whole story of my gender. Um, but yeah, exactly. You know, Stephen Pennington, the musicologist in our film, is, you know, the first trans man that I ever knowingly encountered. That's amazing. I have a... Yeah, that is amazing. I have a... Um... Sort of a related question, uh, specifically for Amos. Um, you founded Original Plumbing, which is a was a uh, magazine for transgender men. In the uh, you founded it in two thousand nine. Um, I wanted to just kind of because you you have a lot of experience firsthand in kind of the evolution of um, you know the community having a lot more ways to connect with each other, but also. On top of that, a lot more ways to, uh, you know, see each other, and uh, you know, in, in all the progress we've made over the you know the past decade, I wanted to just get your thoughts on sort of what 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 strikes out to you the most about sort of the the era that we're living in. Well, you know, original plumbing started was launched when there was Facebook, no Instagram, but. YouTube, I think, was like up and coming. So there was already like, you know, there, I was always very interested in um, printed media. And that's why I started Original Plumbing as a way to have like a tangible item that I could hold on to that had our stories, that had photographs of us in there. But I do think that like with social media exploding 
if that is what it did, <laughs> of becoming, I guess, the accessibility of social media, of apps, of being able to share stories and photographs and and seeing like-minded individuals and, you know, people ex- sharing their experiences through YouTube and Instagram and other places, that is a turning point in, I feel like, the trans civil rights movement in terms of like connectivity. Um, that seems to be what original plumbing uh, was, you know, in, in the forefront of that before really um, there was a place where trans men were, were claiming space for their themselves. Um, yeah, I, I get it. I, you know, sometimes people come to me and they ask about, you know, why does the media focus on transgender women more than transgender men? And it's it's not really my question to answer. And I, you know, to some extent, I also like don't really know. I look at it and I'm like, ugh. And then, but like I I, I kind of point to, you know, the things that are covered. Like you know, the, I mean, not so much right now, but like previously, the the bathroom nonsense. And I mean, the UK is a total dumpster fire for a lot of other <laughs> reasons with trans rights, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, sports, there's a big lawsuit mm-hmm. in my home state of Connecticut right now about it. And I look and like so much of it is 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 negative, but it's not. And then the people act shocked when you point out that like the, the numbers of transgender men versus transgender women. I mean, they're pretty even, I think. I mean, it's been I, I, I don't I, I think the last study I looked at said there were 55 percent trans men to 45 percent trans women. But I mean, it's pretty close. And I, I think that it's kind of another one of those cases where we have to think about why this is the way it is versus necessarily the answer uh, to the question is, is, is why, 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 what has the media done wrong that, that this, this sort of opinion is so prevalent. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, I think you have to think about the relationship between misogyny and homophobia and transphobia that produces certain subjects as hyper visible in culture and, you know, all of the ways that visibility is such a, a a double, a double pronged process that produces on one hand, a, a fantasy of social change. And on the other hand, obscures, you know, the very real ongoing violence, um, and, you know, so I, th- I always think that t- to your point about how the various kinds of visibility and culture, you know, thinking about who is most visible and why and in what contexts is a is a hugely important part of that process. Yeah. And I want to go back to the uh, Diane Middlebrook book because it made me think a lot about I mean, I, I was I trans I first came out and was transitioning as I was doing my masters and I had a very not so fun experience in in grad school and you hear a lot about that from various members of the LGBTQ community and I know there's a lot of people who are, are really trying to fix that in in higher learning and I mean it contrasts well with like the right wing media loves to portray uh academia and places like that as these like leftist hotbeds with the safe space and all the other crap they talk about and when we get to something like Diane Middlebrook's book, which is called Suits Me, like I think the title itself is like pretty offensive because it's like it kind of like it, it goes into this media. I mean, uh, this this media narrative that that transgender people are, are, are tricking people or they're doing it for ulterior motives. And I like to remind people that like. I mean, my career would probably be in better shape if I hadn't come out, and I think that's true of like a lot of people. And you look left and right, uh, plenty, of, plenty of of cis straight men 
fall backwards into success and fail dozens and dozens of times. <laughs> like the, 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 that whole, that whole idea I think is ridiculous, but there's a question hidden in there somewhere um, <laughs> of, of uh, just, just, just the idea that, that there, there was, there was going to be such a positive, I mean, the, the idea that transgender uh, studies or, I mean, which didn't even really exist back then, but, but the idea that that was going to get, coverage at a place like Stanford was going to be a good thing. And then this person couldn't even be bothered to uh, get Billy's pronouns right. Yeah. I mean, it's then, and all of that kind of happened after the family went on the talk show circuit. And it was, it was Kitty Tipton who um, commissioned, you know, she sought out Diane Middlebrook because uh, she was this sort of acclaimed biographer. And, you know, when it, when it started, it was really, it was really trying, like they were really trying to find a way to tell this, like Billy's story in this very, very transphobic uh, atmosphere in a way that like, oh, well, he did it because it was too hard to play jazz music in the 50s as a woman, which is a complete fallacy. And so she kind of just took that and ran with it in a lot of ways. And it's obviously had a very, very detrimental effect and she did so much research, like so much, so much hard, hard work where she contacted so many people and was able to like access so many people from, from Billy's childhood and his friends and his family and all that kind of stuff. And then just kept with this like idea that he did it, he did it for a good reason. And that was for the love of music, which is obviously you think about it for like more than 10 seconds. It's like, well, nobody would actually you know, change their gender for for piano playing, mediocre piano playing career, you know, and he was great at it, obviously, but like that's, and that was part of his personality and was part of his, who he is, but it was not the reason why his gender, why he, why, 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 it wasn't a reason why, it wasn't a gender reason anyway. So it's, yeah, it's disappointing in so many ways. And, and Billy Jr., you know, having, you know, internalize that narrative as well. It was a different experience for him to spend, you know, a few days with our team and kind of again go back through his dad's story that he hadn't really revisited in the last like 30 years and, and kind of understand his father's story in a way that's much more beautiful and interesting and 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 meaningful and true. So, you know, you know, I'm 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 waffling on, but yeah. Well, I, I I think that the the scenes that you captured with him were 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 very moving because the the obvious love was was so apparent you could see it, and um, I teared up especially when um, Jameson is how you pronounce his name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. When when Jameson Green uh, got to got to meet meet Billy Junior because it. I, I I would love to I, w- I would love to just I, I would have loved to have been there when wait, I mean that's actually I mean that's a good question to ask uh, can you talk about just sort of the the engagement process of of Billy Jr. because he's such a like a soft spoken uh, uh, friendly kind of guy I mean and, and he seems to to a certain extent like uh, uh, fairly uh, previously unaware that that his father meant so much to so many people which I, I you know it's got to be kind of a, I was thinking a lot about the Searching for Sugarman documentary about Sisto Rodriguez mm-hmm. that came out mm-hmm. a while back, and like there's they're kind of similar similar strands in a way of of discovering somebody who, you know, you, you didn't know like 
I don't know. I'm I'm, rim- yeah. I'm now I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know we could all probably answer that question. I don't know if we've ever we've done like a one two three punch on it, but you know we. I'll use we and then transition to I statements. You know, we um, as a team were so grateful to have been able to spend a significant amount of time with Billy Jr. because it really allowed us to get to know him and his family. And I think that there is something to be said for hanging around the objects, you know, hanging around the ephemera and Mm -hmm. the ways that that promotes a different kind of storytelling. Because of course we approached Billy Jr. knowing that he had been on the talk show circuit and that he had had a role in the writing of the book and that he understood his dad's story in very particular ways. And so we didn't go in with the intention of some kind of trans gotcha moment. Um, but you know, really went in with, uh, what if we asked a different series of questions or the same questions differently? What could we create together in that space? Yeah. And, and I think just in, in, in that we, you know, we carved out, you know, several days that we were going to spend all day with him. And he was yeah very generous with his time to, to take hours and hours out of each day and then answer our questions and, and, and relive a lot of very traumatizing parts of his, of his youth, you know, like his, his father, his, his father passed away. He took care of his father in his, in his like kind of final days and, um, loved him very dearly. And so that's, that's that was you know we were asking him to go back to that place and I think because we knew we were we we need to do that with care he did say and we have it in the film that like oh you're asking these questions in a way that I haven't had to think about them before and I think because we hopefully were approaching Billy's story with love and care and respect and affection to who this person that we were trying to make a film about that that kind of came through and and we were all kind of found a place of trust you know, amongst the team and with him and his family. And, and then, yeah, when, when we started having a deeper discussion about who his father was and meant to, to the trans community, like he, he was, his, his shoulders really dropped and he was like, there was, there was almost like a, it was almost, there was a, there was a, there was a palpable relief in a certain way of just how he was like, Oh, I'm not here to defend what my father did in quotes, I'm, I'm with people who love him as much as, as I did, as I do and did, you know? So it was, yeah, it was very special. It was a very special time that we spent with him. Yeah. I think like some of the most, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Amos. I think that my favorite part and also the most nerve wracking part for me was when Chase disclosed to Billy Jr. And that's coming from my own, like, you know, just my own trauma and fears as to like, will he accept us knowing, you know, that more that Chase and and I are trans, you know, as his father was. Um, So I just thought that Chase did that so brilliantly and in, I couldn't have asked for really a better response and, um, you know, engagement from Billy Jr. Yeah, it's it was so powerful that you were able to capture that on screen because, I mean, that's kind of a part of the trans experience I, I don't really have a ton of familiarity with as somebody who 
has to basically repeat the same couple sentences about who I am when people are confused and all of that. Why am I... Although, I, you know, it's, it's always nice when you get uh, gender correctly on the phone. I'm always kind of surprised when that happens. But um, it's, it, it, it's so, like, I mean, it just must have been so affirming. And, um, you know, it kind of like almost his, his reaction was, was almost in a way just just very nonchalant and, and comfortable. And that, that, that was definitely, it was, it was so special that you were able to capture that um and uh, yeah i i think a lot about how sort of the um the relationship between jazz and um sort of experimentation and about how that kind of like lends credence i think a lot about how when i was um my first trip kind of outside of the sort of so-called comfort bubble where i i feel pretty good in going around and uh, I, I traveled with my partner to uh, New Orleans which you know it's a Trump state but you know it's obviously known as uh, you know a pretty progressive place and a great hub of jazz and I just felt I felt so comfortable and so uh, just happy to be around these these you know career musicians who you know obviously don't bat an eye because they've kind of seen everything there in the Big Easy and I think a lot about how how jazz as an art form would have been attractive to somebody like like Billy, who just by his very existence was kind of pushing the barriers. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, and I love the work that Riley Snorton does in our film to really tease out what performance can offer and the way that jazz invites a kind of engagement with improvisation and how it really allowed us to think about Billy's presence on stage as a mode of publicness, even while being stealth as a way to be playful as actually a way to foreground gender in really complex ways. You know, he does not perform as someone with a rigid masculinity. And I think that it's through jazz and through stage performance that we gain access to, to the complexity of his embodiment and his self understanding. Do any of you have a copy of I, I as a vinyl collector? I was I, I've mm-hmm. I think I've, I saw the film about a week ago. I've looked a few times to see how much getting a copy of the Billy Tipton uh, Billy Tipton Trio uh, record would cost. Um, that looks like a, a really really fun collector's item. I have one. Amos, you I, have one. Yeah, <laughs> my, partner, um, my partner Sam got me one as a gift. I'm not sure how much he paid, but. It was a, a surprise, and yeah, I'm very. I love having but, it. What, but but one of one of Billy Junior's hobbies is to go on eBay and to find his dad's records and to buy them. So. Well, I wonder. Have- I wonder if Sam bought it from Billy Junior. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an amazing plot twist. <laughs> but like, you know, Billy Junior has a lot of them, and it, but it's so. I mean, I think the lovely thing about about him and how he's kept all of these things of his father's and his records and his clothes and his instruments and his jewelry and all of this, you know, all these accoutrements and it, and his pomade is what is he, what he put in his hair uh, over a hundred years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, but it's, 
it's you know there's this there's this son who is so proud of his father and his accomplishments he's so proud that his father was a talented musician who did these things and met these people and played with these people and toured around and like and and you know i mean i think that's part of you know him embracing like our story and the telling too is that his father is is a legacy he's upheld in a community his story is revered and it's like I think that's ultimately what what he wants, you know, and it's, you know, we, we, we get access through a man that's much older at this point, but like to the 19 year old Billy Jr. Who's just like, I love my dad. He's a good person. And he's a talented musician. And he's, he's, he's like my favorite guy, you know? And yeah, he was, he was incredibly, incredibly talented and, yeah, try to find try to find one of his records, but you might be in competition with, with his son. On, yeah, I might have to bid against his son on eBay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Amos, you said earlier about the uh, sort of your your love of physical media. Uh, I'm a big comic book collector, so I know exactly exactly what you mean. And I I think I, I have a couple uh, old books in 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 my collection, especially when you're dealing with something that has. Uh, relevance to the lgbtq community to hold something that's a lot older than you and to know that this existed in a time before you and that there were people like you and you could draw that kind of uh lineage it's it's so powerful and it, it, i guess it also it in a weird way just holding that fills you with hope i don't know absolutely i feel and that the way. only thing that billy i'm sorry go ahead I don't know, you can finish well, I'm sorry, I'm just I'm blabbing on again, but like it's and it's the only thing that Billy Tipton specifically has left behind. You know, this is the record. This is what he wanted us to remember him, or these, or his was by his music. Anyway, Amos. <laughs> um, but yeah, about about the connection to printed materials and the history, I find myself like collecting um, old magazines and old. Uh, anthologies that feature Lou Sullivan, who's a trans man um, who passed away in the 90s, um, I believe. He uh, started FTM International in San Francisco. He was a, a writer and he fought, you know, the the medical industrial system to allow him to transition because he was a gay trans man. And that was really like, look, you know, that, that for a while, part of red tape of transitioning in the 80s and before was you need to be you want to identify as a heterosexual man. So anyway, I being a gay trans guy myself, I hold a flame to Lou Sullivan, really love him. And, you know, I'm always buying like old advocate magazines or old um, books off of eBay and places that maybe feature like a little article of him in it and things like that. So I'm glad that you brought up that, that, these sort of uh, the perception of rules of uh, what your sexuality has to be if you're trans or whatnot, because I wanted to ask kind of a related question. And this is something that we had talked about for, for listeners uh, a bit with uh, Dr. Mannion uh, about the idea of these, these legacy figures where there's, you see a lot, like it's, it's mostly kind of from like the anti LGBTQ or the anti trans crowd who will try and, you know, you hear a lot of people trying to argue over the identity of somebody like Marsha jo- P. Johnson or other people where you're talking about a historical figure and they're like, well, you don't know they, you know, transgender didn't exist. You don't know what they were. Maybe, you know, maybe they were uh, a butch lesbian or, or a, a trans man. I mean, 
and, and the, the, the answer is that in a lot of these cases, we, we don't really 100% know. And yet, like, as a, as a community, I mean, these are our historical figures. Just because the, the language that we use today wasn't exactly uh, around back then doesn't necessarily mean that you can't draw kind of a line between the lives that, those, that they lived and the, the lives that we live today. Yeah, precisely. And I think that so many of our participants, I'm thinking about Thomas Page McBee or Stephen Pennington, you know, really beautifully articulate that it's necessary that we look back and that we try to find people who feel familiar to us and that we might be wrong. And a pursuit of that kind of truth actually isn't what is organizing our pursuits, you know, and that resonances can be temporary, they can be fleeting, they can be personal and, you know, that there's beauty to be found in these kind of historical returns. Does anybody else have anything to add about that? Or I can ask another question. I don't want to jump in and cut anyone off. I don't have anything. Um, well, to, to, as, as we start to wrap up and, you know, to, to listeners who haven't, haven't seen the film and want to check it out on, uh, for for longtime listeners of the show, I mean, one of the themes I talk about is is really this this desire to move LGBTQ narratives forward beyond like in, in a lot of ways. I mean, the media is getting better, but there is some uh, just just very wrapped up in the the rudimentary nature of transition, or we still see a lot of uh, coming out narratives, and like in, in a lot of ways, that's that's good for a lot of people, but in a lot of ways. You know, you don't you don't want one single subject to occupy a sort of big, large percentage of, of our overall output. And a lot of that is kind of out of our control with what studios want and all of that. And one thing that I just just loved about No Ordinary Men was I mean, this is this is a documentary about a jazz musician who happens to be trans. And a lot of that, a lot of that, you know, subsequent story was without his consent he didn't he didn't agree to any and any of this but it it covers just so much territory that i hadn't seen before and i i think that's really the the um point that that would would you know makes this such as a compelling documentary is it's it it, it moves the ball forward and advances uh, it's it's a great addition to LGBTQ cinema as a whole in, in terms of you've just explored some new territory and uh, I learned a lot watching it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. And I mean, I know that's like, you know, that's something that all of you are kind of in progress working on. Amos, you're working on Gossip Girl. I know that, um, you know, do, do you all want to talk about uh, sort of what what's next on, on the docket for you? Uh, I mean, I'm yeah, ready. I mean, oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I feel like there's no, a no, delay. No, no, no. You both talking over each other this whole time is bringing me so much joy. Oh I just, God. I don't talk just so that it happens. Sometimes I'm like, <laughs> let's you know, do it. How do you know it's going to happen? <laughs> I don't, but I just hope, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, your fingers are crossed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm writing on Gossip Girl for uh, HBO Max. That should be out in 2021. We start filming tomorrow. Um, yeah, I'm I'm just returned back to the wonderful land of writing and development, and so I have a couple of like features I'm attached to, and a couple of series that I'm attached to, and just you know happy to be, you know, just like exploring the stories and like the perspectives that I'm that I'm excited about, and and 
not be in post-production of this movie that we just finished up not too, too long ago. So we'll see when anything gets actually back into production, but that's where I'm at. And I'm in production on a feature film called Framing Agnes, which is based on a short of the same name, which um, engages never-before-seen stories from trans history found in the archives of the UCLA gender clinic in the late 1950s. Yeah, I highly, highly recommend that short. Uh, it's right along the lines of what I was, what I was saying about like I just love, love this, this. We're, I mean, we're in such a great era right now for 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 trans content and, and trans storytelling, and it's so beautiful. Um, I also, I, you know, like in the COVID era, you know, there's kind of like two wrap up questions. There's what's next, and then there's kind of like, well, how are you doing in COVID? And I guess for a film like this, which was filmed. Before COVID, mm-hmm. that's that's yeah. right. And then yeah. uh, at least some of the post happened in. Uh, do, you, do you want to talk just a little bit about that as well? I mean, luckily we had finished filming um, in 2019. Uh, basically, just we kind of wrapped up filming around this time last year, and then started uh, started into post production at around yeah, like kind of like end of you know right around this time, sort of end of October, beginning of November. Um, uh, I'm the editor of the film, so I was I was cutting it for the last few months, and so went through went through various um, states of COVID. <laughs> but luckily, my edit suite is in my home, so that didn't uh, didn't hurt that process. But it 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 kind of it made Chase and I's um, <laughs> collaboration be much more zoomy than we would have liked. <laughs> we, we, we got together like many times, like, you know, in person at my house and in LA when I was cutting down there. But like, um, but I would have, would have loved if, if we had much more, you know, simple access to each other in person. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I really, I think that the film is just, uh, it's so fascinating. I mean, this is, right down my alley but uh a lot of our, our listeners too will find so much to uh appreciate in 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 i i, I feel like like i feel like i know billy now which i i imagine is really kind of the highest compliment you can uh say about a documentary you made made somebody who i mean i knew who billy was but i didn't know him like that that well and you you brought the I, I feel like I, I I feel like I want to hug the guy, and I've never <laughs> met him, and I I don't really I can't imagine he would you know be like oh yeah yeah this random person wants to hug me but it's yeah <laughs> beautiful that level of love intimacy I love that that's a great conclusion that's so sweet yeah. yeah. That's really wonderful. Thank you. We don't know yeah, how, how Billy would deal with COVID, though, so he may not be into hugs at this moment. <laughs> well, he could then do, I mean, so uh, the film <laughs> just finished up at AFI Fest and will be, Doc NYC is, uh, starts on, on November 11th. Uh, listeners of the show, we will feature at least a couple more people. I'm getting... I mean, timing, you know, COVID, election, film festival. I mean, it's every day is just uh, really, really chaotic. But I want to I want to thank uh, Ashling Chase Amos. Uh, this uh, this was a real this was a real treat of a, of a film. And I, I really I, I highly recommend it. And I always talk to people about the follow through because, I mean, representation and visibility uh, are extremely important. But there's a there's a what's next that always needs to be asked with everything and there's a turning of the page and you know trans people are here let's 
you know, let's have some stories that uh, show us outliving our lives. And that's what Billy did. I think Billy, I mean, is, is it safe to say that Billy lived a full life? I think I, I kind of got that impression, but that's not for me to say. Oh, yeah. Billy lived a full life. For sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ian. This has been lovely. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great note to end on. Um, I want to thank everybody. That was uh, so much fun. And uh, to all our listeners, thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next time. Bye.